0: Um, You know, this week, we're in week three of our uh, Galatians study. Galatians is a a New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul to multiple churches in a region that was known as as Galatia. And uh, the the title of this series is not very clever. It's Galatians. Um, But really, the purpose of this is we're talking about what it means to be set free, uh, to live free. And uh, the Apostle Paul, in this letter to the churches in Galatia, There's a couple main themes. Uh, One of the big things is he he addresses the false belief that that people had, uh, that they had to do certain things or behave a certain way in order to earn God's love, uh, to earn God's forgiveness, and to earn God's salvation in their lives. So throughout the letter, uh, Paul confronts a false gospel that taught uh, salvation through faith plus works. This is something that had made its way into the church, and Paul confronts it head on. And as he writes to the Christians in Galatia, he really flips this false gospel on its head. And he teaches us uh, this core principle. This is so important. I'm going to throw it up on the screen this morning as well. And that is that um, God's delight in you is not based on your performance for him. God's delight in you is not based on your performance for him. Instead, it's based on Christ's work on the cross on our behalf. That's such an important truth. And once again, Paul teaches that a person is justified or made right with God by God's free gift of grace through faith in Jesus. We're not saved by our own good works or by keeping God's law. I'm going to say this, though. Good works And obedience to God's word will be a natural byproduct from having a sincere faith in Jesus. And that's really what we're going to talk about today. The relationship between faith and works as well as how legalism can and does destroy the church. So today we'll talk about faith and works and how legalism destroys the church. So three years After meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, the apostle Paul went back to Jerusalem. So we have to remember over the past couple weeks, when Paul first had an encounter with the risen Lord, he was leaving Jerusalem and he was on his way to Damascus um, to persecute Christians, to destroy the church. He wanted to arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem in chains. Well, he never made it back to Jerusalem on that particular trip. He had an encounter with the risen Lord. And the end of Galatians chapter 1, what we read last week, it would have been Paul's first time back in Jerusalem after becoming a follower of Jesus. So we read this verse last week, but I want to share it with you today. Galatians chapter 1, verse 18 says, Three years later, I went to Jerusalem to get to know Peter, and I stayed with him for 15 days. Now this is a verse that maybe we probably just pass through it, right? It doesn't seem like it holds a lot of weight. doesn't have a lot there for us, but um, it's important. And and my first thought, first thing that comes to mind when I read this is how long it took for Paul to go back to Jerusalem. It took him three years. And then what's crazy is he didn't stay in Jerusalem very long once he had arrived back. He he traveled such a long way to get there, and then he only stayed there for 15 days. Uh, Now, Damascus, if this is where Paul was at, uh, coming from to Jerusalem, and I think there's enough information that's given that um, that's the conclusion we can draw. Um, it's over 200 miles away from Jerusalem, and that's if you were to use modern roadways. So you're, you're thinking about this, this, this journey, this, this trip that Paul's on, over 200 miles, likely on foot, and then he only stays there for 15 days. See, this was Paul's first visit back to Jerusalem, and I think that was for good reason. You see, when Paul first left Jerusalem, we have to remember his mission was to stop the spread of the gospel by persecuting Christians and by destroying the church. And his first visit back is as a changed man. This isn't the Saul that we, that we once saw. This is Paul, the apostle of Jesus. His new mission in life was to spread the gospel of Christ at all costs. In fact, Acts chapter 9 tells us that when Paul made this first trip back, he first tried to meet with other Christians in Jerusalem. They were reluctant to meet with him because they were afraid of him. All right. So they knew what Paul's past was like. And I think we can relate to that. Right. If we know someone's past, especially if it's a dark past, maybe we're a little bit afraid to meet with them. We're afraid to hang out with them, to spend time with them. And here's Paul, this changed man. The first time back in Jerusalem, the scripture tells us that uh, this group of Christians, they were afraid. They were fearful to be in in, in Paul's presence. But after this initial visit, again, it only lasted 15 days, we see that he goes north into Syria and then into Cilicia, and he didn't return to Jerusalem for another 14 years. 14 years. Uh, Galatians chapter 2 verse 1 says, Then 14 years later I went back to Jerusalem again, this time with Barnabas, and Titus came along too. So at this point in history, and it's believed that this was after Paul's first missionary journey, um, Paul is going back to Jerusalem because God had called him there. Otherwise, he wouldn't have gone on his own. Remember, Jerusalem is a place that holds a lot of bad memories for Paul. He has a lot of negative life experiences in this place. But while he was in Jerusalem this time around, this is his second visit back to Jerusalem, um, we read about how Paul met privately with men who were considered to be leaders in the Christian church in Jerusalem. And as Paul met with these leaders, um, he shares the true gospel with them. Now, he didn't do this because he was afraid they weren't teaching or preaching a correct gospel. He did this because he was worried that his efforts over the years to advance the true gospel of Christ would have been in vain. Remember, false teachers had made their way into many of the local churches. So Paul wanted to make sure that these church leaders in Jerusalem were accepting and teaching the true gospel of Jesus. So Paul shared the gospel with them. And this is amazing. The scripture says they accepted Jesus. His message. They, they didn't add anything else to the message of salvation and hope that Paul was teaching. Uh, Galatians 2 uh, verse 6 says, The leaders of the church had nothing to add to what Paul was preaching. It, it's crazy that they didn't even ask Titus to be circumcised on this trip. And we talked about that a little bit over the past few weeks. But we have to remember, Titus was a Gentile Christian. So if there was a false gospel being preached and accepted in the, in the Jerusalem church... Titus would have been asked to be circumcised. And I think about, man, what a, what a sigh of relief for Titus, right? And so this was likely Titus's first mission trip. Now imagine you sign up for a mission trip, all right? You do all the fundraising, you do everything you need to do. And uh, you're going on this mission trip, and all of a sudden you're told that when you get there, you have to be circumcised, all right? It, for me, eating foreign food on a mission trip is bad enough, all right? I can't imagine being Titus in this position, I can only imagine what must have been going through his mind, right? Because this was the norm in the area. I would have been sweating bullets. But the only reason this this question about circumcision came up while they were in Jerusalem was because there were people who were kind of involved in the church, maybe had a really loud voice in the church. There were people who were present who claimed to be followers of Jesus, but were only in the church to cause division. They were only there for uh, their own reasons. So, Galatians chapter 2, verse 4, it says, even that question, this is the question of circumcision coming up, uh, came up only because of some so called believers there, false ones really, who were secretly brought in. They sneaked in to spy on us and to take away the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations. So these individuals were claiming to be Jesus' followers. On the outside, they probably had the right words. They probably dressed the right way. They probably knew all the right lines. But inwardly, it couldn't be further from the truth. And their agenda was all their own. See, their agenda, their mission was to pervert the gospel, to add to the gospel, and to tear apart the church. And you think about who's in their presence. It's the Apostle Paul. This is the wrong guy to be bringing these issues up with because Paul knew a little bit about this. Remember Paul's past. Originally, it was to set out to destroy the church, to stop the spread of the gospel. His mission before knowing Jesus was all of these things. So Paul wasn't buying this for a minute. All right? He'd been there. He'd done that. And as he spoke with the leaders in the church, he stood his ground on the, on the true message of the gospel, You see, many individuals in Paul's day, they claimed to be followers of Jesus, but they denied that Jesus' work on the cross was sufficient enough for salvation. Through their own human law, their own rules and regulations, they wanted to add to what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And we've talked about in this series, that's a false gospel. That's not true. We're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. So Paul stood his ground on on the message, and it's amazing because he won the complete endorsement of the other apostles who were in Jerusalem. Even Peter, James, and John, kind of the the big three, they acknowledged and endorsed the mission that God had given Paul to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And it's interesting, when this section ends in Galatians chapter 2, there's something thrown in there that it it almost doesn't seem like it belongs. Because here you have this conversation happening— Paul's preaching the gospel, and, and they accept and they affirm the gospel, and then they had one request for Paul. And I think this is extremely important for the church today to, to hear this. Their, their only request was that Paul and those who were preaching the gospel to the Gentiles continue to help the poor. That's how this section of Scripture ends. And I, I truly believe that's because compassion is a key component to following Jesus. It's not an extra. It's not, well, maybe if I'm gifted in that or if I want to serve and help the poor. Compassion is giving up our wants to meet another person's need. It's giving up the things that we think that we need but are really wants, sacrificing that so that we can meet the needs, the actual needs of someone else. All Christians throughout the New Testament are, are called to be compassionate towards those who are in need. And I would say that a church that is not compassionate is not a church that is following the true gospel message. A church that is following the true risen Lord. We should be compassionate towards those who are in need. So that's really how that section of scripture ends. And and I believe that's some some background and some history that's going to help all of us get on the same page for the scripture that we're going to read today. And as we talk about really the main points for today. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. And we're going to pick up in uh, verse 11 uh, through 16 in this first section, and then we're going to have one more section after that. Um, We'll have the the verses on the screen, and we also have Bibles in the back of every seat now, or almost every seat. So um, there's no excuse. Everybody should have a Bible out this morning. (laughs) So Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. This is what we read. When Peter came to Antioch, And this is Paul writing. Now, this is one of my favorite stories. All right, this is amazing. When Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. So here's Paul opposing Peter to his face. These are like two pillars of the faith here. This is really crazy. So when he first arrived, uh, Peter ate with Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. And then listen to this. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. And even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And then Paul says, when I saw that they were not following the true gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others. He's calling Peter out here. Since you a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? It just doesn't match. It doesn't go together. He says in verse 15, you and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. I think a better translation is there is not Gentile sinners because we know that Paul's a sinner. We know that Peter's a sinner. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we've obeyed the law. And then he says, for no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. So It's not stated when this particular visit to Antioch or this conversation between Paul and Peter took place. But for us to understand this setting And the significance of of this incident, this encounter, it's important to know a little bit of Peter's story. What what brought him to this place? So here, Peter's being called out by Paul because the gospel is for everyone. Amen? The gospel is for everyone. In fact, I'm going to say this, and then on the count of three, I want you to repeat it with me. The gospel is for everyone. One, two, three awesome. The gospel is for everyone. And, and this wasn't clicking in Peter's head at this point in time. But Peter knew this. He knew this because Peter is the first person mentioned in scripture to accept a Gentile Christian without them having to be circumcised to be a Christian. Peter was the first one. And that's with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. He was the first one. He's experienced this. He knows this. It's like, come on, Peter. What's wrong with you? The gospel is for everyone. Peter also knew that the other apostles had approved the sharing of the gospel with the Gentiles. Peter was present in Jerusalem the second time that Paul was there, and he endorsed the message that God had given Paul. He was a part of this decision. He, he endorsed it. He accepted it. He said, this, this this gospel message that you're preaching to the Gentiles, we affirm it, we accept it. Keep doing it. But he's off track. And it's shortly after these events that Peter is in Antioch having a conversation with Paul. Now, we don't know, and it's probably wrong of us to speculate. We don't know if it's a week later, a month later, or a year later. It's probably not more than a year because we do have other events given to us. But it's while he's in Antioch that this conversation is taking place, that he's being called out in front of all these other people. See, early on, Peter was quick to accept and befriend Gentile Christians, but he's also quick to desert them and he deserts them because of the opinions of others, not because of the gospel. He hears criticism from other people, and he gets, he gets scared, and he stops associating with them. It's like, I guess for me, the only thing I can think of is what I saw in middle school and high school, you know, kids sitting together at lunch, and you've got one or two kids that no one will sit with, and you know, you go to youth group and you hear a message that it just fires you up, how you should love everybody. And I remember this like it was yesterday, just being compelled to go and sit with some of these kids and befriend them. And then all of a sudden you have all these other eyes on you, right? And you get a little bit embarrassed. And all of a sudden you desert what's really important because of what other people think. And maybe you have a story that makes a lot more sense than that. But for me, that's kind of where that, that hits home. So some friends of James come in. They come on the scene. These are Jewish Christians. And Peter decides, out of fear, not to associate with these Gentiles uh, anymore, these these Christians. These people are in Christ. They love the Lord. And he decides to do that because they're not circumcised. Because they're not following old um, Jewish law and tradition. And remember, that had a place in the Old Testament. But we're not people under the Old Covenant anymore. We're under the New Covenant. That has no bearing on our salvation. This group of Christians had taken a huge step back. And because of Peter's decision, and I don't know that we think about this very often, but we have other eyes on us. When we're proclaiming that we're living for Jesus, we have other people watching us. And that's what happens here. Peter, he decides to, to not associate with these people anymore. And as a result, other Christians followed Peter's example. Barnabas and then this whole group of, of Christ followers. They had taken a huge step back and they were no longer following at this point the truth of the gospel message. Now we do know that Peter's story doesn't end here. It's about four or five years later that he's present in the Jerusalem council. They're making some decisions and he's the first one to speak up on Paul's behalf and on the, about the message that Paul's preaching. So there was some change that had to happen. Peter had to be called out because he was going down the wrong road. I think that's important that we understand that it's, uh, it's important to have accountability in our own lives from other Christians. And just because we might get called out on something, it doesn't mean that somebody doesn't love you. In fact, I think that's one of the greatest examples of love that we have. They care about the direction that you're going down, the path that you're going down. Like uh, what Proverbs talk about, the, the path of wisdom. We want to be going down that road. So that's going to lead into the first point for today. And you're probably thinking, man, point number one right now. These points are short, but they're important. All right. Point number one is this. Legalism runs contrary to God's design. Legalism runs contrary to God's design. So when we look at the New Testament, this is the definition, just a one-sentence definition for legalism that I, I came up with. Um, I, th- I think this is consistent with what Scripture teaches. Legalism is working within our own power to earn God's favor. Legalism as a whole is working within our own power to earn God's favor. So Peter refuses to associate with these Gentile Christians because he was afraid of what Jewish Christians would think. Paul reminds us over and over and over again that a person is made right with God by God's grace Through faith in Jesus, not by obeying the law. Yet Peter, Barnabas, and other Jewish Christians, they were led astray at this point in time by a false gospel that taught faith plus works, or faith plus following the law for salvation. See, friends, the the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is all about what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us, not about what we can do to earn God's favor. That's the message behind the gospel. And when Paul was confronting Peter, he was confronting legalism in the church. It's so important that we recognize this today. See, so if, if legalism is working within our own power to earn God's favor, I, I, I can't help but wonder what legalistic tendencies or practices that we have in our churches today. And this is where it gets a little bit personal So for me, the first thing that comes to mind, and it's because I've had some experience with this, and my wife has had some experience with this, is the way that you dress or are expected to dress when you come to church. How many of you heard growing up that when you come to church, you're supposed to bring God your best, especially in the way that you dress? Just a show of hands. How many of you heard that growing up, right? So my wife was raised in the Glencoe Church of Christ in Glencoe, Oklahoma. I don't expect you to know where that's at. (laughs) It's there, I promise, but... You won't find it, probably on a map. She heard this her entire life growing up in the church, and she kind of just accepted this as as truth. You know, bring your best to God. And and the problem was, though, that my wife's relationship with her mom, her mom had a different idea about what my wife's best should be. (laughs) So as she's getting older, she's in high school, you know, um, my mother-in-law, I love her. I'm just the messenger this morning. I'm just passing on the story that was told to me. But she, she, she would try to get my wife to wear certain things to church. You need to bring God your best. This is what God's best means. Well, here's the deal. Her, her, the idea of what is best for her might not be the same as her mom's. What she's comfortable in wearing to church might not be the same as what her mom sees as, as comfortable. And you say, well, that sounds good. That sounds like an opinion. What about what Scripture says? I've looked through it, and I just don't see it there. In fact, I see another message. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, so this is when Samuel's been given uh, the awesome privilege, but also the responsibility of selecting the next king of Israel. We know that's David. So, uh, But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way that we see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord Looks at the heart. the The message throughout Scripture is that God uh, cares so much more. He's so much more concerned about our motive and our attitude in worship than the way that we're dressed. So my experience with this, um, I was a youth intern in 2008. So I was being paid to be an intern at Antioch Christian Church in Oklahoma City, a, ch- a church about this size. Um, the church didn't know me very well yet, and I walk in the front door on a Sunday morning, and it, it's summer, so you know I'm dressed appropriately, but I also have a hat on because I, if I remember correctly, the youth was going to take a trip afterwards, so I have a hat on, and I come into the church, and one of the greeters, an older gentleman, I'm sure he, he has a heart for the Lord. He loves the church. He's serving because that was his response to what God had done in his life, but he walks up to me. I'm not two feet in the door, and he says, you need to walk outside and take off your hat, and then you can come back in and worship. That encounter, I'm glad it happened I didn't argue with him. I didn't yell at him or anything like that. Um, But that encounter changed forever the way I would view the church. And I'm thankful for it. That happened in 2008. I got word in 2015 that Antioch Christian Church had shut their doors for good. And I talked with Nathan, their pastor at the time, and there was a lot of reasons for this, but one of the reasons was because legalism had taken root in their church, and they cared more about following rules and law than advancing the gospel and fulfilling the mission that God had given them. I was turned away that day. If I wouldn't have already been a Christian, I probably wouldn't have come back. I'll just be honest with you. If that was someone's first experience in a church, I wouldn't wouldn't give them a hard time at all if they never came back. God is much more concerned about our motive and our attitude in worship than He is about the way we're dressed. And I decided at that point that any church that I serve in, if I have the ability to help this, we're not going to have a dress code. You want to know what our dress code is? Wear clothes. <laughs> Please. Because I, I believe that you should be able to come, and I believe Scripture backs this up, with your doubts. You should be able to come on Sunday with your fears and with questions. And be able to meet Jesus where you're at. Because that's where he meets us. That's where he met Paul. Did Paul have to get his life together? He was on the road to persecute Christians, to kill Christians. And Jesus met him right where he was at and changed his life. Shame on us if we get in the way of Jesus changing the life of a person. Shame on us. The second thing that comes to mind is traditions in the church. You know, my, my wife also grew up in a church that sung nothing but hymns on Sunday morning. And hymns can be amazing. I, I love a lot of hymns. But the tradition behind it was that they would stand for two verses. And then on the third verse, they would they would sit down as a church. So it was very liturgical. It would stand, sit, stand, sit. Um, I don't think that would fly in our church. <laughs> but here's the thing. The tradition was so valued. The tradition was so valued that if anyone suggested doing anything different, it would have been shot down immediately, as if the tradition itself was given directly to the church as a command from Jesus. You see, when we elevate tradition in the church to the status of law, it becomes legalism. Traditions can be helpful, we have traditions in our family. Um, as a church body grows, there will be traditions that we have as a church family, and I think it's okay to value those things. But when traditions get in the way of advancing the gospel, it's legalism. And I believe Jesus wants nothing to do with it. Here's the last one, and I'm going I'm to share a thought with you in, in, in your... This is my opinion. I'm going to share scripture to go with it as well, but... Um, what about things that we label as off-limits for Christians to do? So we go through Scripture, and then we say when someone's a Christian, um, they either can or can't do these types of things. And there are certain things in Scripture that are prohibited for Christians to do. And it's not because of a checklist of do's and don'ts. It's really because of God's heart towards us and his care for us as a perfect father. But we tend to take the things that he instructs us with, and we take it to a whole nother level. So, just one example, and there's probably many more in this room today that, that you could share. Um, the Bible clearly forbids Christians to get drunk. Clearly forbids Christians to get drunk. There's there's nothing helpful about this. It, it, it can hurt your witness. It it doesn't bring God glory. But nowhere in Scripture does it require total abstinence from alcohol. It just It just doesn't. Now, if you were to ask me, Craig, what are your beliefs on this? Well, for our family, we're raising kids because of the platform that God has given us this time and really since we've been serving in the church. I don't see the value in drinking personally. I just don't. I don't see the value. Scripture talks about how all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. So I just don't see the benefit in it. If a Christian friend is drinking to get drunk is addicted to a substance or causing another person to stumble in their faith because of their choices, then absolutely, we should gently hold that person accountable in their faith. But where we often go wrong as the church is when we condemn another believer if they simply drink alcohol in moderation. The Bible never condemns this. And again, that's just one example. That's legalism. It's working within our own power to earn God's favor. What's my message to really all age groups today? Number one, put Jesus first and remember the influence you have as a believer. Remember, Peter started doing some things and there were other eyes on him. So ask that question. Is it it beneficial? All things are permissible, but is it beneficial? Is it going to help another person? That's really the question to ask. But where we go wrong as, as Christians is we start condemning other people for things that are not scriptural. I've had conversations this week with so many people in our church. I've just been asking questions about what's your experience with legalism over the years. And the stories are endless in the church. You know, from smoking a cigarette and not being able to play on the worship team to getting a divorce and not being able to serve in the church. Or, you know, I mean, the list goes on and on. And again, I'm sure you have a list of your own, but that's not what God gives us in Scripture. See, legalism centers on earning God's approval through what we do or what we say, but true Christianity is built on a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And the good news is this, especially in the context of Galatians, you can never do anything to make God love you more than he already does right now. And then the question always comes up, well, aren't we supposed to behave a certain way? Aren't we supposed to live a certain way? Absolutely. And we're going to get to that. Point number two, trying to earn God's favor through works denies the necessity of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Let me say that again. Trying to earn God's favor through works denies the necessity of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. The second section of scripture that we're going to look at today, Galatians chapter 2, verse 17 through 21, this is what we read. But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we're found guilty because we've abandoned the law. Would that mean Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. Rather, I'm a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law I already tore down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all of its requirements so that I might live for God. And then a famous passage of scripture, one that should be a life verse for many people. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. What's Paul saying here? Well, he's saying specifically in verses 19 through 21 that if we could be justified or saved by simply obeying the law, then Christ died for no reason. That he died for nothing. If we're trying to earn God's favor or a right standing with God by obeying the law, we're essentially saying that Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection was unnecessary. But church, we believe it was necessary. Amen? Amen. We believe it was necessary. His sacrifice opens the door to forgiveness and a restored relationship with God. And that's why trying to earn God's favor through works denies the the necessity of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. It was for a purpose. It was for you. It was so that you could be set free in Christ. Point number three. These last two are a little a little shorter. God frees us from good deeds, but God also frees us for good deeds. God frees us from good deeds, but God also frees us for good deeds. Uh, in the book of James, uh, chapter 2, you know, James, James talks a lot about the relationship between faith and works, probably more than any other uh, book in the Bible. He also talks about legalism, and this this text is is so important. So James chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, he says, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Or or suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, well, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, and and eat well. I'll pray for you. I added that, because we often say I pray for you, and we don't pray for him. What good does it do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. And it's not talking about salvation here. You're going to see. It says, unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. It's talking about a useless, a useful faith or a dead faith. Not you, baby. (laughs) Now someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds, but I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? And then, Then he says, I will show you my faith by my good deeds. James 2 goes on to talk about how faith without works is is useless. It's useless. And James, he tells two stories in James 2 about two Old Testament characters who were made right with God through faith. This is the Old Testament, so they were made right with God through faith, but they were shown to be right with God by what they did with that faith. It's the evidence of. And the point is this, that when we think about our relationship with God, we're constantly reminded that it's never about doing enough. It's never about signing up for enough ministries, serving enough in the community. It's never about earning our salvation. In fact, we can never do that. But as we begin to trust in Jesus more, as we begin to see the world the way that Jesus sees it, as we grow and mature in our faith, any hint of guilt-induced work is replaced with joyful, grace-saturated obedience. Obedience to the authority of Scripture as a follower of Christ should be from a place of joy. We, we, we live the way that Scripture calls us to live. We, we, we advance the mission, the gospel that God's called us to advance because it comes from a place of joy because we know what our life was like before Jesus, we don't look at scripture and say, well, it says do this and don't do that. and it's That's religion. I believe Jesus hated religion. As we grow and mature in faith, any hint of, of guilt-induced work is replaced with joyful, grace-saturated obedience. So if you know Jesus, you follow the commands of Christ willingly because you not because you feel guilty, but because you've been loved greatly. Does that make sense? That you, if you know Jesus, you could, you follow the commands of Christ willingly, not because it's from a place of guilt, but because you've been loved greatly. And this is an important distinction to remember as followers of Christ. We are saved solely by God's wonderful gift of grace through faith in Jesus. But that faith, if it's sincere, and that word sincere is the word that the New Testament uses. If our faith is sincere, it will naturally produce good works in our life. You could say it this way, that good works are the result of a growing faith. Good works are a result of a growing faith. So we were introduced to a a young man named Titus earlier. He was so relieved when he went to Jerusalem that they didn't make him do some things that were going to be pretty scary. And I want to end with with a few verses from Titus chapter 2 today. So Paul's writing to young Titus, verses 11 through 14. It says, For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom Righteousness and a devotion to God, while we look forward to the hope that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. And I love all of this, but this last verse specifically it says, He gave His life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us His very own people. And listen to this, these words totally committed, totally committed to doing good deeds. Man, the people of God serve Jesus from a place of joy, totally committed. I, I, for me, I read that word totally, and that's not 50% committed or 75% committed. Like, our focus should be on the things that, that we should be focused on, the right things. We shouldn't be wasting time with things that don't matter. We should be totally committed to doing good deeds for the glory of God. Amen? So the Apostle Paul, he was doing his best To help the Christians in Galatia understand that obeying the law of the Old Testament, it didn't make them right with God. And the same is true for us today. We're not saved or made right by how much we do for God or how how well we behave. Just like those in Galatia, we're saved by God's grace through faith. And it's then out of this faith in Jesus that obedience to God's word and good works flow. It should be a natural byproduct. True faith in Christ will produce good works for Christ. True faith in Christ will produce good works for Christ.